G'day, I'm Barry Green. Thanks for joining me on Conversations on Radio WA, 87.6 FM, East Perth and Western Tourist Radio in the southwest of Western Australia. My next guest is a professional speaker, a business coach and an author who I last interviewed in 2015 in relation to his book, Seducing the Vigilante Customer. Graham Harvey. G'day, Graham. Barry, good to see you again. I guess in many respects, or some respects, the world has changed since 2015. What are your thoughts on business in, this is being recorded in uh, September 2021? You're right. In some ways, it has changed. I mean, COVID has certainly presented business with challenges that it uh, didn't know existed before. I mean, the last time business had to deal with something similar was about, about 100 years ago. And of course, no one left any how-to book on how to handle pandemics. So business, to some extent, has been flying blind in terms of how does it deal with this changed environment. So whilst that has changed, the impact that it's had on service levels for business has primarily been because I believe that consumer demand has actually increased rather than decreased. Customers have more choices these days, and uh, particularly the the younger generations. Uh, I mean, we, we old boomers... If someone stuffs up, we probably normally give them a second chance. Millenniums, no. Nah. You blow it the first time, you've blown it blown it for good. So there's increased demands for businesses to be uh, providing even higher levels of, of service. And if people don't step up to that, well, the consumer of today has just so many more choices available. And particularly, COVID has forced a huge amount of business to go online. So now, of course, people are trading and buying products uh, all over the world. Once upon a time, your competitor was down the road. Now they're just a click away on a keyboard. And whether that parcel's coming from from Perth or from Melbourne or from London or Abu Dhabi, it really doesn't make a lot of difference to today's consumer. They basically want the best product at the best price and they want it now. Do you think COVID's changed an aspect of that in that it's made people appreciate more the importance of uh, local, especially in relation to food? Um, yes, and, and I'm certainly a strong supporter of, if not ultimately buy local, certainly try local in the first instance. But I don't think that buy local is an excuse for poor service or poor products or whatever it is. You still have to meet the mark of your competitors. Now, all things being equal, if the, if the product offering or the service offering is the same, then people typically will go and buy local. Uh, but if there is a huge differential in price, in other words, if the local is more, that much more expensive, or the service levels are a lot lower than what they can get elsewhere, people won't choose local just because it's local. You still have to meet all those other, you still have to tick all those other boxes for them to buy local. I guess in relation to food, and this is uh, with my, I guess, worldview as an organic or regenerative farmer, is that food is something that uh, it's the foundation of our civilization, but the real quality of food is very hard to measure. Just because it looks good or, or even tastes good isn't to say that it's necessarily got the nutrition that it really needs. I guess there are two lots of people. There are people like uh, you and I that I guess are relatively food conscious in terms of asking questions about uh, you know, where it comes from. I'm pretty much whole plant-based these days. still have the occasional piece of fish and stuff, but you know, I frequent the uh, local farmer's market. I live in Albany. 
And so I guess given the option, people would rather buy fresh and buy local. But at the same time, they still need to eat. And uh, if the only cherries available are the ones from California and they want cherries, well, they're not going to say, well, I'm not going to buy cherries. I want cherries more than I'm only going to buy cherries if they come from here type of thing. So I think there's there's no one sort of cookie cutter approach that we can provide. But I think as people are becoming more environmentally conscious, uh, I mean, I think more and more people are suddenly realising that, you know, if we don't take better care of the planet, then we're not going to have anywhere to live at some point. And I think part of that is just being conscious of how we grow our food, uh, the herbicides and the, all those sorts of things that hopefully we can, we can do without. Um, I think there's a huge job still to, to convince mainstream agriculture that they can actually grow crops in a non-chemical environment. Um, sure, there are extra costs involved, but I think the consumer of today is actually prepared to bear some of those costs given that they can buy you know, organic food or fresh food or go to a farmer's market where the person selling it is the person who, who grew it and stuff. So we only need to look at the burgeoning of farmer's markets around the world over the past 10 or 20 years to recognise that they, I mean, they wouldn't exist if people didn't want them. Absolutely, and I think the farmer's market analogy is really interesting and uh, Western Tourist Radio, our website touristradio.com.au I like to think as, uh, as to t- WA Tourism what farmers' markets are to food. So our, our main interest is the unique small businesses that provide the unique experience. And while you talk about the, the Californian cherries, I, I do have a concern there as a regenerative farmer myself in that uh, this movement of fresh produce around the world is breeding pests and diseases. And so as a biosecurity issue... Uh, I think it is a bit problematic, and you'd have to say COVID really comes down to a, a biosecurity uh, failure. Yes, and I think it's interesting to draw the analogy b- between the two, but I still think at the end of the day people need to feed their families and they will basically buy whatever is um, most readily available uh, to them. I remember a couple of years back my daughter, was uh, she wanted me to get some prawns from the supermarket. She felt like prawns. So I ended up buying some prawns, they were just in a packet, they were on skewers. And when we got them home, I must I was a bit remiss when I bought them as to not look at the label. When I got them home, they were prawns that were caught in, I think it was Argentina or somewhere, somewhere in South America. They were packaged in Spain and they were on sale in Albany. So literally tens of thousands of food miles attached to those very prawns. And you go... There's something wrong with this model, you know, and, and, that's, and that's part of the thing. So I think, as I say, had I read the label in the supermarket, I can assure you they would have stayed there, but I was rather remiss and I didn't do it till I got home. But we were sort of somewhat gobsmacked when we did read the label and understood where they'd been caught, where they'd been packaged, and here they were, you know, so anyway. I absolutely hear what you're saying there. I share that concern. And uh, I, I watch your Facebook uh, posts and I, I sense that you are somewhat... Uh, concerned about modern capitalism I am but that doesn't make me a communist no and I think people get confused they sort of think as a think from a binary perspective you're either a capitalist or you're a communist well no I'm I would say that I'm very much a conscious capitalist and uh, you see organizations like the Whole Foods group in in America that have that's recently been bought out by uh, Amazon who literally have hundreds and hundreds of Whole Foods supermarkets and uh, John Mackey, who founded that many years ago, come from the perspective that 
um, you can still have a profitable business and take care of people. And, you know, one of the things that he did, all his staff have, um, you know, health care and all those benefits. I think they've been somewhat reduced since Bezos took over. But effectively, it always amazes me, the old uh, sort of um, Friedman days where the responsibility of a CEO and its board was to maximise return for shareholders. So it was like profit at all cost. But the great irony is that if you actually take better care of your customers, you'll actually make more money. So the whole thing, from my perspective, is all ass about face. I mean, when I was um, CEO of an organisation, I said to the board, my primary responsibility is to my staff. That's staff number one. Staff's responsibility is to take care of the customer. And in taking care of the customer, you take care of the board and the shareholders. But if we do it the other way around and just focus on shareholders at the expense of customers and staff, you'll end up making less money. So it, to me, it just, it's just madness. So, so I very much, my, in my work with clients, you need to focus on delivering maximum value to your customers. Keep them returning. You keep them returning. And of course, they will then deliver better returns for your, for your shareholders. I mean, you still need shareholders and you still need profits. So it's not about being anti-capitalist, it's actually just doing business in a different way where you actually end up with a win-win-win-win-win situation, not just simply winning for shareholders at the cost of everybody else. I absolutely agree with you. And that's what makes the Whole Food slash Amazon thing interesting because, um, you know, we're sort of approaching a sort of monopoly game situation as far as Amazon goes. Are we going to end up with uh, Jeff Bezos owning everything? And where's that heading, do you think? If, if it continues at its, if it, its current rate unabated, it will ultimately uh, implode. You only need to go back, well, go back centuries. Effectively, every dynasty, every empire has had a start date and an end date. And typically, the end date happens when the proletariat, the masses, go enough is enough. And that's why you will find that the same thing with organisations, you get to a point where, you know what, we're just not going to do business with these people anymore. And they vote with their feet and they take it elsewhere. And so all around the world, whether you go back to the regimes of Pol Pot and, you know, sort of more modern uh, times or, you know, Gaddafi and everything else, ultimately they have these peaks of their power, but then basically one day the general population go, you know what, we're not putting up for this crap anymore. And so effectively, most revolutions have been have come from a poverty mindset where the people go, where the, where the gap between the haves and the have-nots gets to a point where it's no longer tolerated by the have-nots. And that's when the objections happen and effectively regimes, dynasties, empires collapse. Because at the end of the day, the greed of the few will never be sustained or tolerated by the needs of the many. So you get to this tipping point where you go, you know what, nah, we're not shopping this place anymore, we're not putting up with this crap. And that's of course what happens with general elections. People come in, they make a whole lot of promises, they then take care of all their cronies and their individual supporters, they forget about the promises they made to the general population, and then three years or four years or six years later, the general population goes, you know what, you didn't honour your word, time for a change. I'm sure you're right there, Graham, and I think we might be getting closer to that point than a lot of people realise. An inspiration to me is a man called Charles Massey, who's written a book called The Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth, which is about regenerative agriculture. I've done a community radio documentary with him. And in that, he talks about 
an underground revolution, saying that as urban populations become aware of the true nutrition of food produced in regenerative agricultural practice, he thinks there's going to be what he's calling an underground revolution with a sort of linkage to the soil being the, the foundation of the food. And uh, I sort of feel that that is happening. And the internet, which is providing a free exchange of ideas and information, is certainly helping that along. And while there's some things in the world I'd have to say at the moment I find somewhat depressing, I'm increasingly optimistic that the internet is creating a mechanism, and it, we're seeing it in regenerative agriculture, where innovative farmers are able to work with independent scientists and be part of this underground revolution. And if you look at history, information has been controlled by kings and queens, bishops and dictators, and more recently Rupert Murdoch. But I think the internet's fundamentally changed that. Yeah, well, it's interesting to note that Murdoch, um, you know, as much as what just a few weeks ago decided from head office that it would suddenly change its stance on climate change overnight. And uh, as whilst the Andrew Bolts of this world are still sort of pushing back, there's only one reason that Murdoch's position on climate change changed, and that was his realisation that he was backing a losing argument. And so ultimately, that's what I'm again, it's like people power will ultimately prevail, irrespective of you know, whatever the topic is, because you're right. And I think that's one good thing about the internet, apart from you know, all its foibles. One of the good things is it, it creates a communication base. And uh, you know, once upon a time, I remember that it was a story about the US presidency and again, control of information. So for instance, if, if back in the early 60s and during Kennedy's days, you know, if a bomb got dropped somewhere, then typically the population would only get to hear about it five or six days later if, in fact, the power brokers wanted that information to be disseminated. Whereas now, as someone said, there is space cam on the... There, there is, like, bomb cam on the front of that missile as it's being dropped into a building in downtown Baghdad or whatever. So the transfer of information... so. The, the population gets the same information at exactly the same time as the president does. And, and that's the difference. And so therefore, there is no sanitising of the information between the event and its communication, whereas once upon a time, as you say, it was the king or the queen or the priest or the dictator that determined what information got sent out or distributed and what version of that truth or untruth got disseminated. So that's changed dramatically. And so people have exactly the same information at exactly the same time as the power brokers. And I think that's a plus. I do too. Uh, I guess as you get older, you get a bit philosophical. And a quote that I like is that uh, in times of change, the learners will inherit the world while the learned will be superbly equipped to operate in a world that no longer exists. And I think some of uh, people in politics sort of uh, have this belief that they're driving the thing and they're forgetting the fact that uh, they're, they're actually the servants and not the masters in a democracy. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the things that happens, we, they talk about, you know, um, you know, government money. Well, it's not government money. The, gov the money belongs to the, you know, to the taxpayers, to the citizenry, and uh, that gets lost sometimes. And I think that's another thing when people go, hang on, we're paying all this money and why our taxes and stuff. And when we see it being spent irresponsibly... That's also another call to arms to go, no, nah, enough is enough. There's an old saying that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And I think that's the other bit that a lot of pollies still blindly believe that they can fool the people, and the reality of it is that they can't. People aren't stupid. I think you're right, Graham. I'm talking to Graham Harvey. 
on Western Tourist Radio and Radio WA. Our radio and podcast service is dedicated to providing a voice for community and small businesses in Western Australia. We see tourism as having an important place to play in increasing awareness of the natural environment, which is the basis of the tourism industry. I'm not secretive in my opinion of our current um, Prime Minister. I actually used to be a member of the Liberal Party. I truly believed in basically the manifesto that Menzies set out all those years ago. And I think right now Menzies would be rolling in his grave to be seeing what's actually being done in the name of the, of the Liberal Party. And uh, I, you know, I have little time for, uh, for Morrison. I believe he is um, as great a con merchant as, is, as was Trump. And um, again, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but ultimately people won't get fooled. And you can have as many spin doctors as you want, but ultimately people will see the truth because at the end of the day, the truth will always come out. There always might be a bit of a lag sometimes, but ultimately the truth will come out. Yeah, it concerns me that uh, to a fair degree the world's been run by marketers and with all due respect to yourself as a marketer, uh, a lot of times marketers deal in perceptions, not facts, but at the end of the day, facts matter. Oh, they absolutely do, and I think this is part of the reason and... um, so in a lot of work that I do these days, and like yesterday I was working with a leadership group of an organisation, we're talking about values and culture. And so I start off by doing a comparison between the New Zealand All Blacks, which are the most successful professional sports team in the world. I then look at Apple, which is now the most valuable company on the world with a cap of about over $2 trillion US dollars. And then um, Harvard University, which will celebrate its 400th anniversary in 2036. Rated always up there as number one, or I think it's just recently got pipped by Oxford, but it's up there as the top sort of academic institution. And you look at, well, what are the commonalities between these um, different organisations? And clearly the All Blacks play a pretty good game of rugby, the Apple makes some pretty amazing products, and the story of Harvard is, is almost legendary. But the one thing that underpins these successful organisation is a very, very strong culture which is built upon non-negotiable uh, values. So in a lot of the work I'm doing with organisations these days is that clarification of values. What are the rules that they choose to play by? And so more and more organisations are going, you know what, at the end of the day we need to be honest, we need to operate from integrity, we need to be authentic. That means that we need to focus on value, not just cost. We need to take care of our people, we need to take care of our customers. So you have that people coming from that genuine heart space rather from the old marketing headspace. So you still have to have the head, you still have to have the heart, but I believe right now that there is far more heart in business than there previously was. So I, I'm very encouraged by the direction that, that most businesses are moving for because, I mean, if I'm working in the hospitality, I was working with a group the other day and we're talking about this concept called love on a plate. So you can have, coming back to your food analogy, you can have you know, two people that serve up the same dish with the same ingredients um, using two different plates. And just by looking at it, you can see that one has been made with love and the other one has just been some slosh put on a plate, even though the ingredients are essentially the same. And so more and more people are actually looking for that, that heart slash love component in their connection with businesses and their products and their, and their services. So there was that, that genuine authenticity uh, coming back to whole foods, organic foods, less food miles, so again, it's all that other criteria that's coming into people's buying decisions and they, are, they look beyond the spin. 
You know, they, they want genuineness. They don't just want some catch cry that may have sold products 10 years ago. That doesn't wash anymore. What they call greenwashing. Yeah, totally, totally, exactly. And so people have very, very finely tuned BS meters and they can spot it and smell it a mile off. And I think the next generation probably have a more um, astute BS meter than our generation. We're, we're talking about food, and I've previously mentioned Charles Massey, uh, who's a regenerative farmer. And he talks about having gone from the sort of uh, farming in, a, in a, an industrial way to more regenerative ways. And he talks about developing a sense of ecological literacy. And the farmers that are doing that are actually finding that they're getting better outcomes with less inputs and making better profits by developing some ecological literacy. A thing that concerns me as somebody living in regional Western Australia is that I see decisions made in capital cities and around the world of people who are so removed from the natural world that they, they are lacking in ecological literacy and don't know what they don't know. And, and I feel are making some decisions that don't stand up ecologically. Do you think that's going to change? I think it has to change. And I think there's, in fact, I saw a post on Facebook yesterday, which was, and I'd seen it before, was like, well, where does all the plastic that gets dumped in the ocean go to? And of course, you've got this massive waste, plastic waste dump that sort of goes round and round in circles in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And the good thing is that there are now people who are innovatively creating machines that can actually go and harvest and recycle that plastic and stuff. And even the mere fact that supermarkets have got rid of plastic bags, um, you've now got situations where you know straws are being moved, there are dates in calendars where businesses have to become uh, you know, biodegradable packaging and stuff. So when you look at all of that, there is a general move towards um, basically getting rid of the crap that's been contaminating the planet for far too long. I think you're right, Graham, and I think uh, what we're finding is that businesses are starting to respond because it does make more sense. And while uh, you know there's some depressing things happening, you look at the fact that the the, the world managed to uh, solve the problem of the ozone layer, mm -hmm. and so there's hope that uh, humanity can uh, come together and produce a better outcome. Otherwise, there's no hope for any of us. Yeah, and it might sound a little bit soppy to, to end on, but um, one of my four values that I have for my own business, and in fact my first value, is, uh, is the value called love. And it's about care and kindness, uh, to basically to planet, to the fellow man, to animals and, and so forth. I mean, one of the reasons I don't eat meat is I care for animals. And so people can say, well, that's you know, a bit you know, altruistic or whatever, but you know, it's one of the three reasons why I don't eat meat. I don't eat meat for health reasons, for environmental reasons, and for ethical reasons. Now, I don't push that down anyone's throat. I make those decisions based upon my, uh, own, my, my own information and my own reasons for doing so. But I think more and more businesses are coming from that heart, that love perspective, where not only does it make more sense, but the crazy thing is they end up actually making more money. So it's like one isn't at the exclusion. They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, the more you are authentic, you're putting real care and consideration, adding value to your products and services, um, taking care of your people, taking care of your customers, making sure that the inputs into your products and services are sustainable and ecologically and everything else, is, again, as I said earlier, it's a win-win-win-win-win situation. There are no losers when you raise the service bar, the quality bar, the value bar. Everybody wins. 
I'm sure you're right, Graham. And uh, Henry Ford, I believe, said any business that exists purely to make a profit has no reason to exist. So I guess that's a pretty good note to end on. People wanting to get in touch with you, Graham, how should they do that? Go to my website, which is grahamharvey.com. That's Graham with a G-R-A-H-A-M. Or they can email me, graham at grahamharvey.com. I have a number of um, tools and templates and stuff I'm happy to, to share with people. Always happy and ready, willing and able to, to assist. And uh, thanks, Barry, for the opportunity to uh, share some words again. Thanks, Graham. You've been listening to Conversations on Radio WA as we tell the stories of people and places in Western Australia. To hear this conversation and conversation with the other innovators in Western Australia, go to touristradio.com.au forward slash conversations.